there, of course, it's going to be good. All right, if I can get you to stand up, participate with the band as we sing Ain't No Mountain High Enough. for Annie and Wayne one more time. How good are they? I'm going to change gears here real quick and try and take off some of this stuff. My wire's going on right now, which is kind of a bit tangly. Whew, I love that song. I'm a little bit out of breath. <laughs> um, so I kind of asked for that song because... Uh, that is one of Renska and our, uh, my, my favorite worship songs. We love that song. It's, um, you know, if you could put it on our top five love songs, that's, it's in the top five. No, no question. It's lighthearted. You can dance to it. I mean, you wouldn't want to see me dance to it, but, you know, people dance to it. Um, when Renska and I were getting married, someone advised us to use an online registration site, you know, online to organize just your, your, your invitations, your guest list, 
And uh, it was a good idea. And so on this site that we used, you could upload a song, one of your favorite songs, and then when people click onto the site, it would start playing, which seems like a nice idea, but you're the one who has to go and upload all the information all the time. And every 30 seconds, you hear the first 30 seconds over and over and over again. Nothing against Marvin Gaye or Tammy Terrell, but uh, I got a little sick and tired of it after a while. But now, a couple years later, I can listen to it again, and I enjoy it. Got a little hum going on there. Feel a little awkward there. So I'm excited to talk about it today. And the genius of this song is actually due to two couples, right? So the, the showmanship, the, the musical prowess of Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell, where we already talked about, who originally performed this song, and then the powerhouse songwriting duo of Ashford and Simpson. Um, as a young man, Nicholas Ashford moved to New York, right? And he was trying to pursue this career as a dancer, which didn't, didn't pan out, and he ended up living in a homeless shelter. And so it was while he was walking the streets of New York kind of down, and that the, he was first inspired with the lyrics for this song. He's looking up at the buildings in New York, and, and, he, and it hit him. And so his wife, Valerie, tells it like this. She says, it was actually out of the realization for him, walking down that same Central Park West in New York, that the buildings were so tall and so mountainous that they were not going to stop his dream. And so he said, ain't no mountain high enough. And eventually, with his future wife, Valerie, their lyrics became the great love song we know today. And so... It may come as a bit of a surprise. I didn't know as I was researching this. This was not actually originally a love song, but it's about overcoming obstacles, and so it became about a love that can overcome all obstacles. And so just like, right, every song in the series, we're, we're asking ourselves, why is it that we like this song? Why do these lyrics resonate with us? This gets played at weddings all the time. I think the reason is that we are, we're drawn to these over-the-top kind of outrageous declarations of love. We love the story of, of love told in a song or a poem or a movie that can overcome obstacles, that does overcome, that stands the test of time. And so we're drawn to these lyrics. You know, there's no geographical location known to man that could stop me from physically coming to be in proximity to you. Ain't no mountain high enough. And so if you keep looking at these lyrics, it's not just about physical distance, right? It's about, it's about there's nothing. There's nothing that could stop us being together. There's nothing that could stop our love. And that's it's nice, but it's not, it's not really very realistic because there are actually lots of things, right, that can stop us. Nod your head, you guys awake? Yeah? Okay. Just checking. Even, even marriage, have you ever looked at, like, hopefully if you're married, you've thought about marriage vows, but even marriage vows, right, aren't very realistic. Don't shoot me down. To paraphrase my very own father who performed our wedding ceremony, he said, when people get married, they make the most stupid, ridiculous promises to each other. I know, we were shocked too. But these vows, we actually kind of win. Um, but how many of you on your poorest, your worst, your sickest day can honestly say that you have always perfectly loved your spouse, have perfectly fulfilled those promises? And I think that's why we like them. That's why we need them, because they call us to this higher standard. They, they push us to be better, and that's right where the problem lies, because we are imperfect. We are incapable of following through on these things. And so this morning, um, I want to talk to you about, I don't want to talk to you about romantic human love. I want to talk to you about the only person who can actually follow through on those crazy promises that he makes. The only person who is capable of the unceasing, the selfless love that these songs, these vows call for. And that person is God. 
because all other kinds of love flow out of God's love for us and for his church, the body of Christ. So let's look at passage of scripture that bears a little bit of resemblance to the lyrics of this song, Romans 8, 31 to 39. Some of you probably know it by heart. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised and who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So these words are penned by the Apostle Paul, probably some of the most eloquent he ever wrote. And we're going to take a look at them. Each word is, is so carefully weighed. The logic is, is really just, it's so thoughtfully considered. Um, in fact, Paul writes almost as if he were composing a symphony, almost as if he, were, he, he had this all written out in his, in his head, he, the structure and everything. And so the passage is built around this series. Did you catch it? This series of rhetorical questions, questions that aren't answered, and they build our anticipation for the coming answer. And then in the final verses, Paul finally, he's whet our appetite with these questions, and he gives us the answer he wants. Every year, the youth group, we do this event called 30-Hour Famine. In a nutshell, your kids commit themselves to fasting for 30 hours to raise money to collect food for people who don't have enough food for themselves. And so we usually do an overnighter, we get together, we play games, we pray, we worship, and, and the youth sponsors fast along with them. But the favorite, the best part of the day is on Saturday morning, there's this huge feast. We break the fast with a feast. And so for about two hours before we actually eat, you can smell. You've got all these hungry kids running around, getting all hangry. <laughs> and you got the sponsors getting hangry back at them. And you can smell Dino, Dino O'Donnell's cookies wafting in. You can smell Katie Rubright's pasta and sauce coming in, the bread, and you're getting, you're going, and the anticipation is building. Your appetite is wet. And that's what Paul does here with these questions. He's asking rhetorical questions to kind of get you, to, get you to, to want to hear the answer. So he opens this series of questions with a preliminary, an introductory question. He asks, what then shall we say to these things? What, can, what else can we say? So he's referring specifically to the three verses just beforehand. And it contains, some of them are our favorite verses in Scripture. He says, in all things, God is working for the good of those who love him. How many of you, do you guys know that verse? Yes? Man, you guys are really tired this morning. Late night. <laughs> in these three verses, Paul talks about, he walks through God's entire process of salvation. From his, his foreknowledge, his forelove of each person, of you and I, to their future glorification with Christ in heaven. This idea of foreknowledge is really captured in Psalm 139, where David says, you, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Before you were born, Christ knew you. He foreknew you. 
And he knows every day of your life, and he's already waiting for you in heaven. That's the idea of glorification. It's kind of a big fancy word. But that idea of glorification is that one day we'll be with Christ in heaven forever. And so Paul is actually so convinced. It's just a little detail for you. He's so convinced of the future of that, that we'll be with Christ one day, that he puts the word glorified. He puts it in the past tense. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. He's he's saying God has loved you. From beginning to end. Before you loved him, he loved you all the way to a future that hasn't yet been achieved, but so, which is so certain that you should consider it done, finished, complete. And so Paul says at the beginning of our passage, what, what more can we say? God's already done everything. What can we add to that? And it's kind of to prove his point, he launches into these five these five questions, these questions that have no anticipate, that have no answer, that just build, that whet our appetite, build our anticipation. So we get to this first question, and we know it so well because we sing it in worship songs, we put it on graphics that we share on social media, and Paul asks, if God is for us, who can be against us? When I moved to France at the age of 15, I started attending a much smaller international school in in Toulouse, and this school was, um, I had the reputation of being a tough guy. Now, for those of you who know who me, you're kind of like, how did that happen? And the, re- the way it happened was, while I was still in the States, I had a good friend of mine who was a wrestler. He was a very good wrestler. And he taught me one wrestling move. And it was, I'd get Steve up here to show you, but I don't want to embarrass him. Um, but you basically grab the other guy and you're under the arm, you're, you throw him over your leg and he lands on the floor and then you fall on top of him and he's down. And so I got to this school and, and we're hanging out, hanging out after, after uh, lunch in the common area. As boys do, we start, you know, pushing each other, and then it kind of turns a little more intense, and we're, we're wrestling around, and, and somehow, I don't know how it happened, but I pulled that move off perfectly on, like, the most popular guy in the year above me, floored him, and from that day on, I was the tough American kid. <laughs> and so, uh, about a year later, an, another American kid started coming to school, and he was, he came to our youth group as well. He was a small, he was a Japanese-American kid. I think his dad was French. His name was Quentin. And, and he got picked on pretty bad at school. So my dad said, hey, you should, you should, you're a tough guy. You should go stand up for this kid. I'm like, okay. And so fortunately, I was, able to get, I was able to fly by on my reputation, and I told people to leave him alone, and they did. And that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying, God is on your side. He's the tough guy who's over your shoulder, and no one wants to mess with you. And so... We have this incredible God who's on our side. Who, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, if Paul had simply asked, who is against us? We would find a myriad of answers to that question, right? If you're from Rwanda and of Tutsi origin, then the Hulu are against you. You and I might answer that question very differently. We might say, well, the government, politicians, Republicans, Democrats, Wall Street, Banks, atheists, Christians of other denominations, teachers, parents, siblings, husbands, wives, kids, friends, bosses, colleagues, terrorists, immigrants, the list goes on. We could spend all day talking about who is against us, and we actually do sometimes if you ever sit around the water cooler and listen, but that's not what Paul's asking. That little clause at the beginning of the question, if God is for us, makes a world of difference. He's really asking, if God is for you, Who can be against you that could actually hurt you, can do anything against you? And the answer is obvious because the answer is no one. 
For those who are in Christ, for those of us who are in Christ, your eternal destiny is settled. No one can touch that. Absolutely no one. And if, if your answer to that question is different than no one, you might need to rethink what it means to trust God. And in fact, that's how that question actually affects us. The underlying suppositions of that, that's how it affects us. It's, it's about trusting God. It's how you deal with fear. Right? How many of you struggle with making fear-based decisions? I remember growing up and my parents told me, don't make decisions rooted in fear, son. And I said, yeah, no problem. Life is awesome. This is easy. I had nothing to lose. Remember those days? Now I have something to lose. I've got kids and a wife and a career and a reputation. Not as a tough guy anymore, but... It's really, really hard not to make fear-based decisions. There's always something or someone that we perceive is against us. And so this morning, I want you to honestly ask yourself, what decision am I in the middle of right now where I'm making decisions out of fear? Right? This is why God's love matters, because this is what John says in 1 John 14. There is no fear in love, but perfect love, the love of God, drives out fear. His love matters in your life because it stops you operating out of fear. Instead, you can operate out of love. You know what the easiest way to start doing this is? This is what I found in my life. Is that as soon as you start going, as soon as you start thinking through your decisions and you find yourself making negative affirmations, I, I don't want to do this because I'm, if I do this, I'm afraid this will happen, so I'm not going to do it. That usually means you're making a decision out of fear. Not always, but often. And so I found that in my life, when I start doing that, little alarm bells go off in my head. And sometimes it's not making a different decision. It's just going, okay, this is why I'm afraid of this happening. But what are the reasons I actually want to do this? What are the positives in this? Why should I do it? Not, I'm doing this because I'm afraid that this person will react like this. Or I don't want to offend this person over here. It's tedious. It's, a tedious, it's tedious to try and, and self-reflect, to, to, to evaluate your underlying motives. But it's huge in figuring out how to trust God in your life. With his next question, Paul digs down a little deeper, right? Anticipation builds. We know the answer. The answers are obvious, but he keeps going. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Let's unpack that for a second. God didn't have to send Jesus. He could have stayed at the right hand of God for all eternity. He could have let the human race, all of us, take the punishment and judgment that we deserve and still remain perfect and good and loving and just. Do you like hearing that? I don't like hearing, I don't like saying that. But it, it forces me to admit that I don't deserve anything from God. That's what grace means. That's why it's offensive. It means he didn't have to do it. If he had to do it, if he was somehow forced to save me because of something that I had done or accomplished, right, that's not, that's religion. That's, that's what I can do. I earn my, 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 my salvation. But God doesn't have to give it to us. And yet he chose to offer up his only son to save us from this eternity apart from him. That's why Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls this concept costly grace, because it, got, it cost God something. It cost him the thing which he values most, and it cost us something. It costs our hearts when we have to honestly admit that we don't deserve God's love. And so the next time 
you start wondering if God cares. Paul says, he's already given you his own son. Will he not also graciously give you all things, everything else, everything you need? When it feels like he's looking the other way, when it feels like he's, he's withholding things from you, Paul says, look, in our totally undeserving state, God has already given you his most precious son. And that means you can trust him with every detail of your life. He's absolutely trustworthy. <clears throat> Paul's next two questions come in a pair. He introduces the language of the lawyer, of the law room. He says, who can bring, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Who is to condemn? Once again, if we ignore the conditional causes that accompany these questions, right, we get to a very different question than Paul intends, for, because there are lots of people in this world who can and do accuse us and condemn us, and even more, the devil, who is, <clears throat> excuse me, who is called the accuser of the brethren, points his accusing finger and whispers into our hearts, you're guilty, you're worthless, you're insignificant. The French writer Stendhal once wrote, qui s'excuse s'accuse, which means the one who tries to excuse, to justify himself, actually accuses himself. But God has justified us. He is the one who has justified, who has declared that in Christ we are righteous in his sight. And so who can truly advance any accusation against us that stands? That's why Paul says at the beginning of the chapter, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. This is not that as a follower of Jesus, you can get away with all kinds of things. This is not that we can become arrogant and, 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 and puffed up. He's saying that in an eternal sense, there is no one who can point to all of the wrong, sinful things you and I have done in this life and use them as a reason to separate us from God. Let's just take this one step further. I think it's important. Paul says, God is the one who justifies He's the one who sits in the seat of judgment and looks at you and declares, right, that you have done nothing wrong. It's because of him that you are righteous. Even though the evidence against us proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that we're guilty. And he does this because Christ has paid the price through his death on the cross. It's easy for us to think that there's a list of our sins out there. And God has just chosen not to look at it anymore. And that's what it means to be justified. But Paul doesn't just say that Christ died. He says that he also rose again and is now sitting at the right hand of God, interceding, pleading with God on our behalf. And so the sense of that is that not only does God not look at the list of your sins, he's actually taken the list and tossed it into the fire, and it doesn't exist anymore. Your sins are, they don't exist. They don't, they don't cloud his love for you. <coughs> There's no reason that they would separate you from God. And so Paul keeps building our anticipation with these rhetorical questions. And we're, he's wetting our appetite. He's building this desire to hear the answer, to hear the affirmation of what we know to be true. And so he arrives at his final question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Now we're getting to the end. I love this verse, but there's kind of an uncomfortable truth that goes along with it, underlies it. And the truth is that we're not promised immunity from that list of trials and sufferings that's up there. We're not guaranteed victory in this life. Perhaps many of us experience victory, material victory, spiritual victory, 
emotional victory. But we're not guaranteed it. John 16, Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble, but, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In fact, in the next verse, verse 36, Paul quotes from Psalm 44. He says, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He's quoting from Psalm 44, and he's saying, and this psalm is the Israelites crying out to God, and the context is that they haven't done anything wrong. Oftentimes, when the Israelites underwent persecution from other nations around them, it was because God was disciplining them. But in this case, they're going... We haven't done anything wrong. In fact, we've honored you as the covenant calls for, as, as you have asked us to do. Why are we still being persecuted? And so they're, they're being persecuted for Christ's sake. And so finally we arrive at verse 37. Tension is growing the drama is building. We're waiting to hear Paul affirm everything we know to be true. At the beginning of this week, I was studying this passage, and I, I, I came up with this musical illustration of what's going on here. And I, I was sitting at my, at my desk on Monday, and I'm, it suddenly hit me, and I'm going, wow, this is the greatest illustration ever. <laughs> to the point, there's no one else around, and I'm going, man, i got, I got to tell somebody. So I called up my dad, and I... I told him, and he was like, yeah, that's really interesting. That's really good. And then I tried it out. A couple days later, I tried it out on Steve and some of the staff, and they're going, yeah, this is interesting. This, this could work. And by Thursday, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to feel, going, man, i got to preach on Sunday, and I'm starting to go, uh, I'm not sure it's going to work out. I'm, what if it doesn't work? What if it, goes, what if it goes awry? And so in the end, I, I decided not to do it, and I'm going, okay, I'm, I'm, I'll, I'll find some other illustrations. I got really nervous. Then I was sitting around last night, and I started doing my own little alarm bell thing. I don't want to do this because I'm afraid I might mess up. I don't want to do this because I'm afraid that people will laugh at me. Um, and all of a sudden I went, I'm not actually trusting God with this, because it's actually a good illustration. I tested it out on people. and. They said, yeah, this helps me understand the passage. When I looked at Ranska, I said, I think I gotta do the illustration. So, if you'll bear with me for a second, I want to show you this illustration because as I was, as I was doing it, I'm going, this really helps me understand it. It's a different kind of illustration. It helps me understand the structure of this passage and what Paul's doing here because I think it's so important. So I'm gonna give you a little bit of a musical illustration. Are you ready for this? Okay, bear with me. Brad, we got piano here. So all of music is based around this idea of tension and release, building anticipation and then, and then satisfying that anticipation, right? Question and answer. And so whether you know it or not, your ear is, has been conditioned just listening, being in Western, around Western music, you're conditioned to hear certain things. You probably don't even realize it, but they sound normal to you. And so... All of classical music, music people, I know, yes, I'm massively oversimplifying. I'm going to massively oversimplify. Don't bite my head off. All of, all of Western music can kind of be summed up in two chords. A, a dominant chord, which asks the question, right? That's what Paul's doing. He's asking the question. And a tonic chord, which sums it up, which answers the question. All right? Got that sound? So here's the, here's the dominant chord. 
And what we want to hear is this. Can you hear that? Does that sound normal to you? It should. Okay? Here we go. So Paul, all the way, he's been playing this. To the point where we're kind of sick and tired of it, and we're ready for the answer. And we're expecting to hear this. But what he does is he throws us a curveball. And instead of playing the second chord, what we're expecting to hear, he plays this. Minor chord. Surprise. He says no. He answers his question first. No. In all of these things, we are more than conquerors in Christ who has loved us. And so he gives it in two parts. And he answers all of his questions, all of his rhetorical questions. He answers it to the negative as they actually should be. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? No one. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? No, he won't. It's a double negative in case you missed it. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? No one. Who is to condemn? No one. Who or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing or no one. And so we're expecting the answer. We're expecting the answer. And he gives it to us, but not quite in the way that we're expecting and then in verse 38 and verse 39, there, here he gives us the major chord, the positive, what he is certain of, the yes that our hearts and ears have been, have been longing for. He says, for I am sure, I am certain, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, there's no mountain high enough, there's no valley low enough, there's no river wide enough, there's nothing else in all of creation that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so like Paul, how, how can we add anything to that? What else can we say? It's, as I was thinking about it, it's essentially what John said last week. Trust the potter and trust the process. The process, that's the, that's, that's the death and life and angels and rulers bit. And trust the potter, that's the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you and I could integrate, really assimilate these truths into our worldview, the way we think, then we would be able to say with Paul just a few verses earlier, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. God loves you, and he loves his church. And his, his love is not an intellectual or a head thing. It's not just a heart or an emotional thing either. His love engages the thinking heart and the expressive mind, the emotional mind. It's holistic. That's why we react to this last verse, because it's, he's expressing just incredibly deep theology here, and it tugs at our hearts and mind, engages all of our being. There's one last detail that I want to take us into, that will take us into the working out of this passage in our own lives. Paul says that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That's so important. I can't overstate how important it is for you and I this morning. All through the New Testament, this phrase is used over and over again. In Christ, you were chosen by God before creation. In Christ, you are loved by God with an inseparable love. In Christ, you are redeemed and forgiven all your sins. In Christ, you are a new creation. In Christ, all the promises of God are yes. And there are so many more. This idea of being in Christ is so central, so key to God's love for you. So what should you take away from this? There are three things that... that Three questions that I want you to walk out of here asking yourself this morning these, to honestly answer. And these are questions that I try to ask myself on a, on a regular basis, a semi-regular basis. Um, because God's love 
right, affects all other love. So it affects how we respond to him, it affects how we respond to others, and it also affects how we see ourselves. So question one, do you see yourself through God's eyes or through your own eyes? If you see yourself through your own eyes, chances are you see yourself as much worse or much better than you actually are. Seeing yourself in Christ through God's eyes is, is, is to see, have a just view of yourself. Not to justly understand what your, your, your faults are and to also understand what you're good at. That's how God sees you in Christ and he accepts all of you. Neil, the author Neil T. Anderson talks about in Christ you are significant, you are secure, and you are accepted. Question number two. In your relationships with others, who do you need to let win? Sometimes, you know, when we're in conflict with a family member, a, a, a co-worker, and we want to be right. I like being right. You like being right? No, you guys like to be wrong. I thought this was New Jersey, man. People like to be right around here. And so sometimes when we love sacrificially in our flesh, it feels like we're letting the other person win. It feels like it, it, you have to deny yourself. It means letting them win the argument. So who, who do you need to go away and make things right? Who are you in conflict right now with? Who's that person that you go, okay, I need to figure out how to make things right with this person? It's worth praying, asking God. If you don't have anyone, it's worth asking God if there, are, if there is someone you need to make that right with. That's, that's important. And lastly, question three. In your relationship with God, are you letting his love inform your decisions, or are you deciding out of fear? That was, that was my illustration from earlier. I, I realized last night that, man, I'm, I'm, I'm deciding out of fear. I'm not deciding out of love, out of trust in God. And so what decisions are you making right now where all of your reasons are negative? I don't want this to happen. I'm afraid of this person. I'm afraid of this consequence. I, I really don't like it when that person does this, so I'm going to do this so that they won't do that. All, it's all negative. Won't, can't, don't, like, afraid. It's all negative. God is for us. That's the concept of he's, he declares what he's for. We should do the same. What are you for? Decide positively out of love. As we close and as the band comes up, we need to listen to these verses one more time with the knowledge that there is no mountain high enough, no valley low enough, and no river wide enough. Indeed, there is nothing in all of creation which can separate you and I from the love of God. Take a second and listen to this video and listen to the words again and, and take them to heart.
what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? Since he did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? Who dare accuse us from whom God has chosen for his own? No one, for God himself has given us right standing with himself. Who then will condemn us? No one, for Christ Jesus died for us and was raised to life for us. And he is sitting in a place of honor at God's right hand, pleading for us. And I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is for us.